Welcome to the Imperfect Game Podcast. I'm Sean Melia. Today, I'm talking about Sheffield Wednesday with Boff Long. Boff, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back, as I have, always. I have to stop saying welcome back. It's just you're here. Yeah, I've kind of moved all, in. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, it's great. You know, got, got a sleeping bag out. I'm, I'm here. I'm permanently. Yeah, it might be second bedroom, you know? Right, yeah. right. We're on the couch. It's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, we, um, we've been diving in and talking about teams and doing a little research and looking back at the history of the club. And, and uh, if you have not listened to any of these yet, I would recommend listening to this one and then queuing up the other four that we have done so far, which are, uh, we did Leeds United, we've done Sheffield United, we've done West Ham United, and we started this whole thing with uh, Wolver with Wolverhampton Wanderers, also known as Wolves. So this is our fifth one. Nice. Had fun doing them, and this this one was just another really interesting club. Sheffield Wednesday, rich history goes way way back, and um, has some has some really interesting stories that could almost be be their own little podcast. As I was telling you, just a, a couple things I came, came across, it and I thought, man, this you could. You could just do 20 minutes on um, on a few little pieces of Sheffield United or she- sorry, Sheffield Wednesday history. Um, All right. So let's get into it. Let's just do it. Yeah, sure. All right. So Sheffield Wednesday is in Sheffield, England. Um, I'm not going to dive too much into the city because I spent a bunch of time last week when we talked about Sheffield United. Um Cliff Notes version, pretty much. Sheffield is the steel city of England, um, and it is historically a pretty industrial place, but also steeped in a lot of sporting history. And I was kind of shocked to see how far back some of some of the sporting events goes in this part of the country. Sheffield is up in the Midlands um, in Yorkshire, relatively close to Liverpool and Leeds and um, and that section of, of the country. All right, so let's let's just kind of jump in and talk about the stadium and the stadiums that they have played in. There's this is the first club, I think you, you can correct me both if I'm wrong, that Sheffield Wednesday has moved stadiums a few times. Most of the clubs that we've done have been at their stadiums either for their entire, Time or in Sheffield United's case, moved very recently to a new stadium after being at Upton Park for almost a hundred years. Yeah, is that right? Um, like Molyneux is old as hell. Yeah. Um. And Bramall Lane, which is where Sheffield United played, is old. Um, Upton Park is old, and even Ellen Road is old. I mean, they're all kind of turn of the century stadiums. And Bremel Lane is where uh, Sheffield Wednesday started playing. Right. They played there up until uh, 18, 1887 and then ended up moving. And I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. So they started at Bremel Lane. Um, then they moved to a stadium called Olive Grove. And strangely enough, they were kicked out of Olive Grove because of railroad expansion. So oh. they needed they needed the land for... A railway, and so in 1899, Wednesday, who are also known as the Owls, moved to Owlerton, which is how they why they're called the Owls. Um, and it was risky because it was kind of outside of the city center, so they were depending on people to do at least a little bit of traveling. There wasn't an easy easy in, easy out. Um, maybe think of Gillette Stadium. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just just a place that they were worried people might not go. Uh, they bought a 10-acre plot of land for 5,000 pounds um, right before 1900. They transported a 2,000-seat stand from the old Olive Grove Stadium. So the stadium was being pulled apart because of the railway. So they took an entire stand and moved it out. And so they have they had a stand from their second stadium, Olive Grove. And then they also built a 3,000 person stand on the other side uh and they got pretty good they got a pretty good turnout they'd have about three thousand people at games back then uh and they they you know so that's kind of their existence the stadium 
1912, hosted its first FA Cup semifinal. Um, in 1914, uh, this stadium is, has um, a little bit of a curse because it, it was it was renamed Hillsborough Stadium in 1920, um, which is if you're a soccer fan. Uh, is is probably a name that rings a bell, and maybe you know a little bit about something that happened that I will talk about down the road in this podcast. But in 1914, during a game following massive renovation, uh, they added seats, offices, dressing rooms, some creature comforts like refreshment rooms and a billiards room. Uh, an entire retaining wall collapsed. Uh, Seventy people were injured. There were 43,000 people reported reportedly in the stadium. Now, if you remember. When the stadium was built, it was a 5,000-seat stadium. So once again, we are uh, really dealing with these stadiums that are small, but they're terraced, so there's no seats. So they're just filling it with as many people as they can. So we talked about um, Wembley when it was built and the throngs of people, almost a quarter of a million people filling in and literally just lining the edges of the field so in 1914, they had 70 people injured when when a when part of the stadium or a retaining wall collapsed. Uh, a little bit more history about Hillsborough. In 1920, it hosted its first international match between England and Scotland in front of 25,000 people. Uh, and then in, in the 1960s, it hosted its uh, World Cup games in 1966, and also in 1996, it hosted some Euro uh, Euro Championship games, European Championship games. All right, I got. I have another little piece of stadium lexicon for you, Both. Okay, ready. So last week we learned about the cop. Yep, and that that is that the cop is is just a, a name for a single single stand um, kind of terraced area without a balcony above it. So it's just one kind of big slanted area. So I learned another right. another phrase. Maybe you have seen stadiums in England that have like this this roof that goes over it. Um, so you'll get like a set of stands and then um, like a roof, like a canopy type roof that sticks out from the back of the, from the top of the stand. I don't know. Okay. You know, you know kind yep. of what I'm talking about. So that's, that's called a cantilever roof. Cantilever roof. Cantilever. Okay. And in the sixties, while they got ready for the world cup, they built the longest cantilever roof in the country it's it was the first one to run from the run the entire length of the field and this was um in hillsborough so the cantilever roof um was was a kind of a typical little small stand um piece of piece of architecture to keep people covered because typically when you're watching a game in england you are trying to protect yourself from some sort of element um yeah so this was the, the this cantilever roof is the first one to be built that ran the length of an entire field instead of just the width or, or a narrow part that was built in the sections. And this, this brought the stadium to 16,000 seats. So again, we were talking about, <laughs> you know, 40 years prior, they were filling the place with 43,000 people. And now that they're putting seats in, um, it's a little bit smaller. Yeah. Uh, in the seventies and eighties, it hosted some league cup finals, uh, some FA cup games, and unfortunately, in 1981, they were banned from hosting FA Cup games because they had an issue with overcrowding and people getting crushed by uh, by just the throngs of people in the, in the stands. Because back then, there were perimeter fences built around most fields to uh, restrict people from getting onto the field and... This was the harbinger for the 1989 Hillsborough disaster, um, which is a story that it, it's amazing. As I was reading about this and trying to get as much information as possible, this story is is incredible. So in 1989, um, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest were playing in a FA Cup semifinal game, and 96 people ended up being crushed to death after they were allowed into the stadium um, in kind of an irresponsible an irresponsible measure. Uh, 
fans showed up a little bit late. Fans showed up um, really kind of all at the same time. And as I read through, there's so many people who are blaming. There's so many people who are blaming other people. The blame is is still being passed around, and we are at the point where it was 30 years later. Initially, when it happened, the police were blaming kind of the hooliganism and drunk fans for just misbehaving and creating this crush of weight that that you know killed almost 100 people and injured 766 as well. And then over the last 30 years, there's been reports. Um, there has been uh, just all sorts of court, tri- all sorts of trials and investigations into what really happened. Um, and it seems like the story that most people are going with is that the cops messed up. And the cops, in an effort to get people into the stadium as the game was starting, opened extra gates to let the fans in. And this created uh, kind of a free-for-all getting in. So instead of having just people going through the entry turnstiles, the cops decided, well, let's let's have the fans also go in through the exit, exit turnstiles and we'll kind of double how many people we can get in at a time. And at this point, the Leppings Lane end of the stadium was where the Liverpool fans were going and it was pretty much broken into pens. So you would go into one of five pens and you would stand and you would watch the game. And this had been an issue for a decade in this stadium. Um, Liverpool filed a complaint in 1988 and also asked the police in 1989 before this game to be vigilant about how they were letting their fans in because they believed it was a dangerous place. Um, And people didn't heed that advice and the cops did not heed that advice. So there was a huge influx of people into the stadium and they ended up uh, between having a perimeter fence that could not did not break down um, as people filled in from the back, the kind of the pressure and the push from those people to get into the stadium crushed people up against the fence and also just kind of created a stampede of people and ended up being the biggest sporting disaster um, in English soccer history. Um, and, and, and blame is still being kind of uh, passed around from the cops. The media has been blamed for producing a lot of kind of negative headlines around the Liverpool fans and how they were behaving during the game instead of looking at the facts that the stadium had too many people in it. And there are still people who are relatives of, 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 of the victims who are trying to just get a little bit of justice and a little bit of closure. And we are 30 years down, down the road. Um, that's it. I, I don't know how much you know about it. That's, that's about as much as I feel comfortable kind of talking about as, as far as what I know. Um, there's a writer named David Kahn who I follow on Twitter, who seems to have an article almost every other week about the Hillsborough disaster, because there are still things coming out of the news and still trials and court hearings and reports coming out about what actually happened um, on that on that day. Yeah, I think I mean, it, you know, if you follow English soccer, English football long enough, or watch the games long enough, um, it's bound to come up. Um, and just because it's such a story day in history, uh, or infamous day in history, I should say. Um, and I think yeah, I think you've covered it. Um, I do know that Liverpool, in honor or kind of in memoriam of the of the lives lost, do reserve ninety six seats in their stadium every game. Oh, I um, didn't know that. Yeah, they uh, they kind of just have it in their honor, um, and I don't know exactly where those seats are, but there are there are um, different uh, kind of ways that that people remember and honor uh, uh, the lives lost. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a sad. It's a sad day. It's 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 something that um, is a shame uh, to have happened. But I mean, just listening listening to you know you talking about um, the stadium and having kind of this vagabond lifestyle of bouncing around stadiums and then all this kind of trouble with um, you know crowd control. Uh, it is almost kind of ominous. Just kind of leading up to this this uh, disaster. Yeah. Right. I just it all felt 
it had been written way before it actually happened and um no one really seemed to it's just kind of the way english soccer was it this right. is this is not a hillsborough issue i think it was more of a of just a how people consumed the sport and how um and how the stadiums were constructed and built and then in the end one of the big one of the big things that happened was they got rid of those perimeter fencing so they kind of they re wrote the rules in how you and how stadiums can be built and how stadiums need to be constructed and we end up with mainly all cedar stadiums now because there are there's no there's no kind of standing room only terraced um, areas allowed that can that could cr- possibly create this this kind of over oversaturation of people and uh, and there's no perimeter fencing around fields anymore um, and all those types of things so there's definitely there was definitely things the fallout from it was uh, was pretty pretty expansive both in uh, in 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 how people view stadiums and how people view the fans um, and, and all that stuff so it was it's a there's a lot of good stuff on the internet if you if you want to learn about it and you could you could spend days reading about it considering we just passed the the 30th anniversary um, last April. Yeah, I, I do want to say that um, you bring up a really interesting point that I think we can go down a different rabbit hole uh, on a different podcast of, about kind of uh, fan culture and and how different fans across leagues consume their their soccer. Um, Perimeter fencing uh, does exist still in other leagues around the world. Yep. Uh, and in fact, it's it's almost a part of the game and a part of the stadium down in Argentina. So I lived in Argentina for for six months um, following soccer. Uh, and there's a term called Barra Brava, which means uh, one that is scaling the fence, one that is braving the elements of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so quite literally, this guy, this Barra Brava or men, any of them are on the fence like Spider-Man climbing up and they're they're on the fence the entire game and singing and cheering and leading the leading the fans in that section on on the team songs. Um, and there are tons of them that that scale up, you know, this this I mean, it looks like it's 50 feet high. Um, just, you know, scarf tied to their head like, like a bandana and, and just screaming along. So. You know, Boca Juniors has has perimeter fencing and and they deal with it just fine, or you know, um, at assumingly fine according to uh, the fact that it's still it's still allowed and permitted. Um, and a lot of teams in Germany still have some perimeter fencing up as well. Um, you know, so it's interesting to, to to see that England has moved away from it and it has built more stadiums that are kind of like bowl and flower shaped and kind of really open. And have moved away from that kind of like chocolate box. Uh, is, is it terrace or or standing room only? Um, yeah, because I think a terrace doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it, you can have seats in a terrace, right? I believe. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's changing a little bit. Um, you know, uh, the vibe and the feel, uh, having it more open, having it more kind of. Um, bowl shaped is taken away a little bit from the intimacy of that loud kind of, you know, on top of you feel of fans singing, fans cheering for you or just cheering against you um, for that matter. But yeah, were the, were the, were the Argentinian stadiums um, seated or were they were they standing? Or were you in there with a seat? Yeah, um, I think I, I mentioned I mentioned this in, in an earlier podcast, but there's no rules in Argentina. <laughs> so uh, a, a chair, a chair wasn't really a chair, or a seat wasn't really a seat. You stood on that. You stood on that seat, um, and I think if you were sitting down, you were sitting down. There were there were tons of songs that insulted or targeted people that were sitting down in the seats. Yeah. Um, well, so, but that yeah. that at least did you get a sense that they at, at least managed that then you're at least managing how many people are in different sections whether they're sitting or not at least you or did you get or is it just the seats are just in the way the seats are in the way and it's <laughs> kind of just a, a formality i mean so there's these things called tifos t-i-f-o and it's a massive flag that comes over 
the fans and they're holding it up and they're kind of just dancing and partying under the flag. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's no real regulation on, on like, okay, you're at this quadrant of the flag, you stand here and you know, it's just like you're under the flag, you gotta survive by song and dance and you know, libations. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, there are ways that some countries have figured out how to coexist in in the stadium um, and how to kind of share share these communal spaces. And then there are ways that fans haven't really um, been able to figure it out. And right. I, I'm not blaming it on the fans, I'm not, but I think it's it's an interesting kind of take on culture and, and, and consumption of the football. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so that that. That nineteen that in Hillsboro that the stadium ended up you know getting changed and a lot of stadiums got changed. So looking now going kind of back to just the club. Um, this club was formed. Sheffield Wednesday was formed in. We're going to go way back, almost a hundred years before, more than a hundred years before the Hillsboro disaster in eighteen sixty seven, uh, and it was formed similarly to the way Sheffield United was formed. Um, a cricket club was looking for just something else to add to to the club. So Wednesday Cricket Club was founded in 1816, and in 1867 they decided, well, we need something to do in the winter to keep fit. So the cricket players decided they wanted to start a soccer club, a football club, and that's how it started. Wednesday, I think we were, I don't know if we did this on last week's podcast or if we did it after we got off, but we were joking about like why were they called Wednesday? Yeah. Wednesday's like in the relegation zone for days of the week. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, so Wednesday was adopted as a name because it was the day of the week that the founding members had off. So Wednesday for them was a top a top two day, maybe wow. the top day. Um, so that's that's why it was called Wednesday. There, Sheffield wasn't added um, for a little bit, but it was just the Wednesday Cricket Club, and then they became um, Sheffield Wednesday. Kind of got swallowed up, and in 1929 is when they became actually Sheffield Wednesday. So for for a long stretch of time, from 1867 to 1929, they were just Sheffield Sheffield Cricket Club. Um, they didn't really have a, a specific name, and they were the Blades as well for for until they moved to. Allerton. So that's how they got the name Wednesday. Um, they're the third oldest club in England. Uh, they were a founding member of the Football Alliance in 1889 and joined the Football League in 1892, four years after that was founded. Um, Wolves were uh, a founding member of the Football League, as we learned when we did that one. So soccer and cricket kind of went their own way. Um, in 1882, so this club that was started with two sports, um, the soccer club and the cricket club, decided that they would not coexist anymore. Um, believe it or not, because they were fighting over money, which another another trend that we found over the course of these five podcasts yeah. is how important money is. Uh, so the cricket club ended up disbanding in 1925, but they went their separate ways in 1882. So they both existed for almost 40 years separately, and then the cricket club disbanded. Um, cricket not really as popular as soccer kind of at that point. Uh, in 1868, Sheffield Wednesday played in their first competitive match in the Cromwell Cup, which is just a four-team tournament. And this is, I, I'm not going to go too far into this, but they played this game, this tournament, under the Sheffield rules, which was a code of football that was different than uh, kind of the soccer that we know now. And they had a bunch of different rules. For example, uh, one, handling was forbidden with the exception of pushing or hitting the ball with the hands. And you could make a fair catch. So there was there were hands were involved in this sport. Uh, it sounds a little bit like a rugby or people who might know about Gaelic football in Ireland, like just just a kind of a just a different looking sport. So it's not soccer. So it wasn't quite soccer. Um uh, what else? A goal, a goal could be scored only by kicking. Um, a throw-in was awarded to the team to touch the ball first after it went out of play. So if the ball goes out of play, you're just sprinting after it. Whoever gets it gets to throw it in. And the throw-in had to happen at a right angle 
uh, from the touchline, which is kind of similar to rugby as far as I know. When the ball goes out in rugby, they have to throw it in. They can't throw it down the line or at an angle. They have to throw it right in at a, at a right angle. Huh. Um, yeah, no offsides. And so it's just kind of a different different style of soccer, which I thought was was kind of interesting. Um, there's a whole there's a whole Sheffield rules that existed back then, um, back in the 1860s. Uh, and then uh, just a, one major player in Sheffield, both United and Wednesday, um, is Charles Clegg. He joined Sheffield Wednesday when it was founded in 1867 or when they joined uh, the cricket club. He was connected with the club for his rest of his life. He was the chairman. He was the president and chairman of the Football Association. Uh, he played in the first ever England international against Scotland in 1872. And he was, and Charles Clegg is also the first, or maybe just Sheffield Wednesday can claim to having a member who played in both the first ever soccer and first ever cricket international matches for England. So Clegg was a, was a sportsman of, of sportsmen. He was also a founding member of Sheffield United um, in 1889. So he, he was involved in all sorts of stuff and he was known as the Napoleon of football, uh, in across England. Um, Sheffield Wednesday are also known as the first club to have a professional footballer in England. Um, although the way it was set up would kind of make the NCAA blush a little bit even. Um, so this guy, James Lang was hired by a Sheffield Wednesday board member to kind of work in his business, but he had no formal duties. So they just brought this guy into Sheffield, said he had a job, paid him, and pretty much didn't have a job, and his job was to play football for Sheffield Wednesday. And because they were the only club around that was paying even just one player, they were kind of a dominant power around the 1870s. However, in the 1880s, everyone caught on and started paying players as well, and Sheffield Wednesday while they were paying one, said they were staunchly amateur. They were not going to pay their players. And over the course of the 1880s, they just lost. They lost everybody, like to the point where they almost had to disband. Um, They lost a game 16 to nothing in 1877. They had only 10 players in the club. And an emergency board meeting following that, uh, just demolition of 16 nothing led to the club deciding we should pay our players. Um, so that's kind of professional football was really in 1880s. Guys started getting paid to play. Um, but because they were pro now, they didn't want to share any money with the stadium that they were playing in. So they left Bramall Lane in 1887. And that's where Sheffield United ended up playing in 1889 when they were founded. Um, and then some stuff that they've won. They've won the, they won the FA Cup in 1896. 1903 and 1904, uh, they won the league. In 1907, they won the FA Cup. In 1929, they were the league winners. In 1935, they won the FA Cup. And in 1991, they famously beat Manchester United as a first division team to win the League Cup. And they are the only team, I believe, to win the League Cup while not being in the top division. Um, And then we kind of get... You know, so that's that's this. They were pretty successful, much kind of like Sheffield United, you know, like not a lot of teams around. Um, so they were successful right up until World War Two and then World War Two hits and they just kind of go up and down from 1945 to 1989. Um, they were called the yo-yo years. They just bounced between leagues, didn't really have a solid footing anywhere. And. They were embroiled in a 1964 betting scandal, which I didn't know had happened. Um, apparently, this guy named Jimmy Gauld had a bunch of players all throughout England who were throwing games and fixing matches. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and as soon as some players went to the newspaper and kind of exposed this guy for being the mastermind behind what was going on Jimmy Gall decided he was going to throw some players under the bus for one last little payday um so he went to the like the Sunday newspaper and the three players he threw under the bus were all Sheffield Wednesday players Peter Swan David Lane and 
and Tony K. Um, they fixed a match against Ipswich Town, which they it was a game they knew they were going to lose anyways. Um, I don't think they they matched up with them. So Jimmy Gall just encouraged them to make sure that they lost, and um, and the, and those three guys bet on the game, and Jimmy Gall bet on the game, and uh, and they were caught. Jimmy Gall went to jail for 10 years. A bunch of other guys went to jail for uh, anywhere from four months to, I think, two years was the span of other convictions. The three Sheffield Wednesday players all went to jail for four months. They were banned from football. Um, In the early 1970s, they were pardoned. And Swan and Lane returned to the club, but they were washed up and um, hadn't really been playing much and didn't really play much for Sheffield Wednesday. So whole betting scale in 1964 which could be another like 20 minute podcast just about that it was a, kind of an interesting read uh 1970s they made it they dropped all the way down to the third division almost the fourth division and then a hero of mine came along to manage the team and saved them uh, and that's jack charlton who is brother of sir bobby charlton uh jack charlton played on the 1966 world cup winning world cup team for england he was also the manager for the Irish national team back in the early 90s and was a big reason for their success, particularly in the 1994 World Cup when they beat Italy. Um, I could go on about Jack Charlton for, for an hour. He's great. And over the next seven years under Jack Charlton and Howard Wilkinson, they climbed back uh, into the top division. Um, 80s were pretty blah for for the club and 1991 they were in the first division like I said they won the league cup they beat Manchester United 1-0 behind John Sheridan who is also an Irish player a midfielder who scored the winning goal and uh, is credited for just kind of making keeping the team afloat in the 90s and then 1993 was probably the most successful post World War II year uh, they made the finals of both the league and FA Cups. However, to your pleasure, they lost to Arsenal in both games. To, uh, Bob, yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> Is that? W- w- are, would you be old enough to remember that game? No, but I need I need anything positive right now regarding Arsenal. Just currently, <laughs> so I've got to go back to the years to. Where you, they want. you you sounded so satisfied that I thought maybe it was like your first Arsenal moment. Um, no, no. <laughs> I'm just living it right now via YouTube and and internet just because of the current state of Arsenal. <laughs> um, they also qualified for the UEFA Cup uh, because of their third place finish in '92. So they were playing European soccer. They made the finals of the two domestic cups. Uh, and Chris Waddle, one of their players, won Player of the Year in England. So '93 was a good year. Um, they spent most of the 90s in the Premier League. They were founding members of the Premier League when it was formed in 1992. But they underachieved, essentially. Couldn't really... I think they, they saw themselves as, as a better club than they were. They were spending a lot of money. Um, Paolo Di Canio is, is a kind of a famous signing that they had who underachieved. Um, and then in 2000, they were relegated. And then in 2003, they were relegated to the second division. Um, they had they were kind of paying the piper for a lot of overspending in the 90s as they chased uh, high finishes in the Premier League, and they started to pay for it. Um, they climbed back into the championship in 2005, but then they went back down in 2010. So pretty much that entire decade, they just bounced between the championship and uh, League One. Um, and then here's a familiar story. Here we go. Ready? Yeah. The club was near extinction. Uh, they were going through winding up orders, which is pretty much like that they were going to be dissolved as a club. Uh, they had unpaid taxes. They were just up against it financially. Um, up until, once again, foreign money comes to save the day. As always. As always. So a Serbian-American named Marin uh, Matarich uh, bought the club in 2012, and they made it back to the championship that year. And uh, then in 2014, it was sold again to a fellow named, I'm going to probably get this name wrong, uh, Dashfan Chansiri. Nice. Uh, for 37,000 or 30, 37, million pounds uh, in 2014. And then the club has just kind of 
been average in the championship really since then. Uh, they've made some playoff close calls. Uh, last year in 17, 18, they were kind of really thinking they were going to get promoted or at least fight for it. And they finished 15th um, last year under Steve Bruce, a Manchester United uh, star from the 90s. Um, they finished 12th and Steve Bruce left kind of out of nowhere this this summer. And I think they're just kind of middle, upper middle half of the table in the championship this year. So that's a that's a that's the history of Hillsborough. That's the history of Sheffield Wednesday. Um, kind of some fascinating little tangents that you could go on for for a longer chunk of time. But really, a club that had a really rich history the first seventy years, and then post war, you know, kind of just existed as a club. Uh, the '90s rebounded a little bit, and then and then money got involved. I think, like we've seen with a lot of these clubs, and just makes it really hard for them to survive and and thrive. That's all I got. No, yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think it's interesting to just to look at um, the the identity and profile of the clubs that we pick up and talk about them, um, and we've just kind of watched each club you know, go about their business, uh, in their own way. I mean, they all have the same general goal of either promotion or quick promotion or kind of sustainability or sustaining their, their place in, in the prem. Um, and you know, I think across the five teams, we've seen, uh, a pretty solid range of success and failure. Um, but yeah, I think before I go into uh, uh, my part, my my bit of Sheffield Wednesday and the current state, I, I do want to ask Sean uh, a favor. Can we start a a Steve Bruce counter? Uh, how many times this name's gonna pop up? <laughs> He's like, I want to do a Steve Bruce counter um, and a counter on um, uh, Neil Warnock. <laughs> Uh, these two names that are just gonna pop. I, I know they're gonna pop up around the corner. Like, it's like it's like that uncle at Thanksgiving that's gonna just like. I don't know why you're here. I don't know how you got here, but you're here. Yeah. So no, I he's just he's just a, he's a household name. Martin uh, Atkin- Martin Atkinson's another one. Martin Atkinson, yeah. Uh, you know these names that just just kind of come up. I mean, honestly, like I, it'd be great to just do a, a pod on Steve Bruce and yeah. this. <laughs> mythical figure um uh, that is steve bruce but yeah so um starting today steve bruce has popped up one time uh on the pod um i think he might have been on the pod earlier too um but yeah uh current state of of sheffield wednesday um so we pick up or i, I pick up sheffield wednesday at, in 2015 when when chen siri um known Known by the fans simply as DC, Deshvan Chensiri, uh, or DC or Chensiri, as I'll refer to him uh, for my segment. Um, he picks up uh, Sheffield in 2015 and makes this kind of broad, bold statement that a lot of foreign money kind of kind of make. We'll be in the Prem um, in three years' time. We'll be in the Prem in four years' time. Uh, this kind of this this weird sweet spot time of three to four years that. I don't know, uh, allows them to kind of rebuild, restructure, bring in some players, have a little bit of momentum built up, and then go go uh, for the big prize that, that is the, the premiership. Um, in fact, it reminds me uh, in my all and uh, in, in all my research, it reminds me of um, this this documentary that I really recommend. Uh, you might be able to find it on YouTube. Actually, it's called the Four Year Plan. The Four Year Plan is um, a documentary series or documentary movie on on uh queens park rangers and it's like a behind the scenes look at at this club trying to see what what they can do in four years after some foreign money um and it's honestly like it's like the amazon city series before the amazon city series existed yeah uh it's really cool check it out um and, and it, it might give you a little bit of a of a, of an angle into what these clubs go through, um, on a day-to-day basis, trying to kind of get themselves into the prem. But anyway, um, 
you know, unfortunately with Sheffield Wednesday, we're looking at a story that is not quite success. And I, I think honestly, um, everything that you talked you talked about regarding kind of bouncing around stadiums, regarding this gambling scandal, uh, mismanagement with um, the the board and the fans. Um, I think all of that really kind of just like paved the way or set the set the the foundation for history just kind of repeating itself. Um, unfortunately, we find ourselves in the midst current uh, struggle with stadium uh, right now. So the biggest story, I mean, you know, Chancery buys them for around 38 million, 37 million. He buys them and he invests a lot of money uh, in players and, and different staffing to come in. And, um, spends a lot more than what is allowed by league rules and English, uh, EFL, uh, standards. So the rule is that over three years, a team in the championship or in the lower divisions cannot spend or cannot lose more than $39 million. They must stay within that kind of loss, um, meter, of 39 million and, and as an effort to kind of you know sustain themselves and and be a club that is abiding by financial fair play rules. Yep. So if you can kind of turn over enough of a profit where you stay within that range of 39 million, you're deemed healthy enough to um to stay. Which is it, an, which is still an amazingly large number. It's crazy, right? <laughs> like yeah, go to that 39 million <laughs> and you'll be all right. Yep. Um, so Chan Siri with, with Sheffield Wednesday, um, like a lot of other clubs in, in similar situations, Chan Siri, um, is kind of panicking. He's just saying, oh man, what's going on now? How do I, how do I get out of this? And as I'll get into in a little bit later in the pod, he's not somebody that is completely experienced in how to manage a club in, um, financial crisis. So this guy, uh, owner of the largest, I think it's tuna, largest canned tuna uh, supplier in the world, um, out of Thailand. His big idea, his fix-it uh, idea, is to buy the stadium from himself or sell stadium to himself. So Sheffield Wednesday is going to get out of their situation out of their predicament by selling the stadium to the owner and what in doing, yes in doing so what what the plan is if they sell their stadium for 60 million dollars which is what the, the number i think is actually they can turn around and report a profit of you know healthy enough uh, levels where they can kind of fall back into the sustainability uh range of 39 million um, and after taxes and after all that, they would be able to report something around like a three to four million dollar profit and, and show that they're healthy. Right. Yeah. So. So as the owner of the club. He doesn't already own the stadium or is this or is the club selling the stadium to his other business? So, right. So the cl- the club is selling the stadium to. Uh, a company that he owns. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, which I mean, like kind of leads to this whole, I don't know, theme of money laundering. Like I, I that's, it just doesn't really, doesn't really fit and doesn't really, um, sound good. No. Um, and, and so what, what happens is, or it, it, it's fishy enough already as it is, but what happens further is that neither club or company can report or, or show that there's been an exchange of money. Uh, it's just that they, they reported that they were in a $38 million loss for this, for this uh, quarter or this, this section of, of their financial history. And then within like a month's time, they've reported back a $39 million profit um, in a time period that just does not make sense for Adam. <laughs> right. And so now the league is getting involved and, and the EFL is saying that, um, look, something's fishy. We don't, we don't really like the, the sign of this. We're going to kind of bring you to court and, and look at your, your books and, and look at what you're, 
you know, what you're exactly um, trying to tell us regarding the, the health of, of your club. And there's confusion, there's a lot of doubt, and there's a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, suspicion that this man might not be the right for the job. Uh, yeah. This man, Chen Siri. Um, and yeah, currently as it stands, uh, we're in a court, we're in a court battle in, in a court case, um, for trying to figure this thing out. Obviously Sheffield Wednesday has declined to, to report or comment on anything regarding this, the situation. Chen Siri has gone out to the fans and said that we're going to resolve this as soon as possible and fix this, um, as fast as we can. Um, but, Really, it, it it doesn't point to I don't know a direction that that says Sheffield Wednesday will be will be in the Prem next year, despite their current standings at the time of this recording. They're sixth place in the league in the Championship. Uh, they're doing well on the Gary Monk, who's had some Premier League experiences with with Swansea. Uh, um, but right now, the penalty that they face is uh, a points a points deduction. So the league might come in and say you violated your your terms or our terms of sustainability. We're going to dock points, or if it's even serious than that, we're looking at an automatic relegation um, down uh, down a league. What? It, that's yeah, on, that's on the table. It's on the table. Wow. Um, and it really depends on on how how serious their infraction was. Um, it. I mean, it just like here. I want I want to kind of rewind a little bit. So this man's great plan, this man's big master plan is to sell the stadium to himself and buy it himself, right? And then and then use that money to go get a player. No, and then use that money to to, to break even and and report a a healthy financial standing for this term. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. But here's the problem. You can only do that once. So this team is on average losing 20 million to 30 million a year. Golly. Uh, just, I mean, what, on what they're spending. I don't know what this guy is doing with the money. I mean, he's bought, you know, he's brought in some transfers. Uh, over the past three windows, they, they're averaging around 15 to 17 million dollars uh, of, of spending. And that's just transfers alone, not, not including what it takes to run the club, yeah. uh, stadium, you know, maintenance and Wages. everything. Right. Wages, everything that, that comes in, in into play. So they're still going to report another loss of 38 to 39 million over the next three years with no real way of, you know, making making a money or making profit other than like a, mir- a miracle appearance in the Premier League. Well, they're going to get this windfall of whatever million dollars that I said in the last podcast, I think it was 100 something million dollars, 170 million if you win that pl- if you win that play in. Right. So, I mean, it's a big gamble. It's an absolutely big gamble. Um, and I, I don't really know how, how Wednesday get out of this one. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, isn't that the goal is just to to look financially stable and until you can get into the Premier League. I mean, it's like constantly asking a family member for money. Right. Just to pay your bills, not even to do anything exorbitant you're not asking because you're going to go on a on a trip to australia um but just to be able to kind of get by on the hopes that you win the lottery right to pay them back yeah it's it's a it's a horrible take on a fake it till you make it yeah kind of of philosophy and then Um, and then it also becomes really messy if he has to sell the club and he still owns owns the stadium like how does that yeah. whole thing go down? I mean, so, so he bought the club for thirty-seven million pounds, but he then he bought the stadium for sixty million. Yes, the it's, the stadium was sold for sixty-one point two million. Um, but again, there's no history or no record of any transfer of money, or actually the 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 company that that bought this the stadium um, having the stadium rights. So you can't really own it. Right uh, until, until until you paid for it. Yep. So they haven't even paid for it. They just kind of in name said, "Yeah, we bought it for sixty million, <laughs> like a pledge." <laughs> right. Oh man. So it's it's pretty bad. It's 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 pretty bleak right now. Um, and, and 
like three point deduction at this point would really put them behind the eight ball. Like all it would take is three points and they are suddenly in the bottom third of the championship. Right. This has come up uh, with other other teams in the championship um, that have, you know, kind of infracted or 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 violated the the, the financial fair play rules and were docked nine points. Uh, nine points. Yeah. Uh, I mean, nine points is, is debilitating. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and we, we, Leeds got, had 15 points the one year that they didn't get their, their stuff together over the course of a summer and they started the season 15 points behind everybody. Right. It was, it was actually Birmingham city that were, that were docked nine points for, our, uh, for breaching the, uh, uh, the rules regarding fair play. Um, so nine points, you know, off, off of their, their current run, I don't think they can recover from. Um, but we're at a point where the fans are are torn. They're 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 stuck between: do we want someone else at the helm of this club? Uh, do we want someone else owning this club with a little bit more management and ownership experience, or do we keep you know Chen Siri? And I think that decisions them already. No one wants to buy this club. This club is just losing money every year, twenty to thirty million every year. They've got crazy wages. They've got players that are aging. They've got um, a huge mess on their hands, and you know it's just bad infrastructure. So I don't know if he can even sell it. Um, and you know, this is a case of foreign money coming in, wanting to be a savior, wanting to be kind of the Cinderella story of, you know, um, I'm going to invest some money. Pick pick them up from where they are and take them to the promised land of, of the Premier League, and I don't I don't think this is going to happen for Sheffield Wednesday. I apologize to any Wednesday fans on this uh, listening to this podcast right now, but it looks pretty pretty dire uh, straits. Man, I didn't realize because you texted me a little bit about this last night. I didn't realize how um, how many points they could lose. I, that's and nine is nine is for the record. Nine is actually on the lighter side of what of what could happen. Again, to reiterate, they might actually just get automatic relegation. Yep. Um, especially if if this whole transfer of, of stadium is is deemed really really fishy slash illegal. So do, do you think that because of the money that's involved with promotion, uh, that the championship and I would even say I'll I'll include League One because I think you gave a stat last week that 57% of the clubs in the top three uh, English leagues are foreign owned, right? Right. Do you think Do you think that the money, whether you're a foreign owner or a, a, a English owner, that the money involved generates this type of fishy behavior more than more than we would want it to, or more than we'd like to know? I yeah I I think it's it's definitely the money I mean there's so much money involved in in sport and namely uh, international soccer um, but I think a lot of it is that people just love soccer and 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 they love the idea of being that person to come in and and put a team on the map um, you know and and the the attraction is that you can buy a club or buy a team for as low as 37 million. I mean, there are, there are players in the Premier League that are worth double that, triple that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very, very, I mean, you look at it, it's a very tempting uh, investment of, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll put up the 37 million and then I'll put in some, you know, uh, some money to, to, to buy players and bring in the manager and, Everybody wants to kind of cut their teeth at the lower levels. Uh, a manager coming in wants to prove himself or wants a, a, a second shot at, at at glory, so he'll sign on that contract and he'll work, you know, in in a championship and he'll believe in himself and his ability to take a team to the next level. Players want a second shot and so they'll sign for that team. Uh, and then the owner, you know, so it, it's everybody kind of just buying into this this dream. Um, and unfortunately it, it can really get, get messy. And, and, Uh, and you don't want to be the guy who owns a club as old and storied as Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, you don't want to be the guy who just, who runs it into the ground. 
No. So then, but, so then you have the outside, the external pressure of the club. Right. You know, maybe it's a it's, doing this whole stadium deal is like just an act of desperation uh, to keep to keep afloat. Right. But you do want to be the guy that saves the club and yes. brings them back to the glory days. So that that right there is, I think, what what attracts all these foreign investors. Um, wow, I can be the hero. I can be the the person that that brings us back into the light. Um, and I think that's that's what you have. Uh, and of course, you know, there has to be some kind of eye on sponsorship deals and partnerships and and just money coming in at at the higher levels of of, of English soccer. Yeah, it's a it is a the once you get once you get to the middle of the championship. Um, division it really does it, it it just must be so hard to be in that in that window of of uh space i was watching sheffield wednesday and brentford this weekend i just kind of put it on in the background and i'll tell you what if, if people have like if you ever have 20 minutes and you just want a good like blast of 20 minutes of soccer find a championship game that is tied with 20 minutes left <laughs> or even even just a goal if there's a goal in it with 20 minutes left the Sheffield Wednesday game was empty the stadium was not there was no one there to watch the game um but man I've, I've, I've that's kind of been my my soccer hack is I just I'll find a game and put and I'll put it on with 20 minutes left whether it's a replay or live and uh those guys are so desperate yeah to for points and Wednesday was down one nothing, and Stephen Fletcher scored two goals in the last. I think it might have been the last twenty five minutes of the game um, to win. He like ripped his shirt off after the second goal. Uh, the you know the everyone you could just tell it matters so much. But God, it's got to be so hard when you're just in that middle ground. You're not quite in the playoff. Ah man, I don't know. And, and it, I think it just generates this desperation within clubs, whether you're a player or an owner where you're trying to find ways to to get by and make money and maybe and maybe get into that 170 million dollar game. Yeah. It's uh it's I mean 3 points mean so much to every one of these clubs. Um and again, I I think it's one of the toughest leagues in the world. I think I mean take any Champions League team and put them in the championship for 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 a few months and they're going to come out with a couple of scrapes and bruises. Um, just because there's a different kind of hunger, there's a different kind of uh, of, of fight down there in, in that league. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, you know, right now uh, Wednesday are in this kind of limbo where they're trying to figure out what's going on um, with the stadium and 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 all that controversy. There's hope that they can resolve all this stuff before the January window, um, but. I think the the reality is that it won't get resolved until at least the end of the season. Um, and then, you know, from there, there might be a, a cleaner, a cleaner break of we're going to dock nine points now at the end of the season and wherever you fall, you fall um, yeah. or straight delegation. Um, so, yeah, this podcast kind of took us to the field, but quite literally, it was all about the field and, and the stadium that that Sheffield Wednesday play in. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately might, might determine what actually happens with the players and the managers on the field itself. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, it's, it's a sadder story. It's a, it's a more grim story, but I think also one that, um, is, is worth following. I mean, now it's Sheffield Wednesday is our second team in the championship that we've got on the radar. We've got Leeds and now Wednesday. Um, and we're looking at two very different, uh, trajectories with two clubs that are, both aiming north, but one might fall short. Yeah, I, I tell you what, If as we're doing this, I'm looking at the table. Leeds and West Brom are 10 points clear of third place. Yes, again, Sean, I'm... Um, and they're, they're halfway through the year. They've played 21 games and 20 games, respectively. So, like, if Leeds doesn't make promotion, it will be, it will be quite a story to be told. If Leeds does, I'm buying you and, and myself... A, a Leeds jersey with Bielsa on the back, definitely holding up that promise. Definitely keeping up, keeping up with that with that uh, pledge. 
Um, Leeds is my current favorite team right now in in the championship. So, yeah, and, and uh, I, I I gotta say I I thought I've been thinking more about it. It would be it would be a lot of fun to just go and spend like two weeks in that stretch of of England and go to games. Yeah, I think you do need uh, um, to fast for a little bit. If- oh yeah championship kind of like the championship diet is, is, is a different kind of diet like you're not in posh london you know north london <laughs> arsenal you got all these nice meals like you're down there you're eating double fried potatoes in a fried bread yeah my brother and i experienced that in we went to old trafford like five six years ago and we were only there for 36 hours before we before we left we just came in for a game and i don't think we ate i think we had two meals and they were both not very good and not very good for us. Uh, not a lot of great dining up in that part of England, at least that we could find in our limited knowledge of Manchester. And I'm sure I'm sure uh, Sheffield with their uh, greasy chip buddies. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'll bring my running shoes, too, and just run it all off. Yeah, he can try. <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 what I've got on, on the pod for, for Wednesday. Um, it'll be fun to watch and interesting to, to definitely check back into later on at, at, at a different point. Yeah. Now we, we, uh, we've got to figure out what we're going to do next. So we'll, maybe we'll do that off, off air and, uh, look through the premier league and decide where, where we're going to research. Definitely. Awesome. Cool. Thank All you, right. Sean. Thanks, Bob. Bye. Bye. Bye.